Good morning. Welcome to Grace. You guys will stand with us. We're going to sing. I just wanted to say also, you guys, I don't know who's met Herb, our electric player, but this is his last Sunday, so feel free to come and give him a hug afterwards and tell him goodbye. (laughs) He's going to look really sad this whole time while he plays. Right, Herb? No. Um, But let's sing together. It's starting the Christmas season, so we're going to start out with the Christmas carol. So let's sing out together. Put your hands together if you'd like to. I sing it. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous tunes. guys a new a new Christmas song uh, just written maybe a year or two ago um, and this is this is the verse verses that it comes from um, and, and this is the song of Mary it says and Mary said my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant from now on all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me holy is his name 
His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thought. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And so we just sing this song kind of echoing those words and talking about how God has been good to us and that we will magnify him. So let's, let's sing this out together.
soul magnifies my soul my soul magnifies the Lord my soul my soul magnifies the Lord my soul my soul magnifies the Lord my soul, my soul, magnifies the Lord. My soul, my soul, magnifies the Lord. My soul, magnifies the Lord. He has done great things, great things for me. My soul, my soul, magnifies the Lord. a portion of our service where we when we pray individually throughout the week we get together as a body and we go before the throne together as a family. So bow with me as we pray and we go before the throne. Father indeed our, our souls cry out from the depths of our soul that you would be magnified magnified in us as individuals, as families and as a church. Father, once we were separated and dead, Father, and you, while we were dead, while we were yet sinners, took the initiative to draw us to yourself. And even now, Father, as uh, believers, oftentimes our hearts wander and we engage in things that are just uh, incompatible, Father, with who we are. And, and yet the same love, the same uh, Father draws us to himself. Father, we come before you with broken hearts, inadequate, useful, Father, only as your spirit fills us. This morning we come before you with repentance and confession, laying these things down, Father. I pray that your spirit will, will invade us, will burn in our hearts as we spend time in the Word, as we spend time together in fellowship, that you'll transform us, Father, into those believers, Father, that you would send out draw people to yourself. So create us during this time, Father, a clean heart. Investigate our hearts. Search our hearts. Transform our hearts. 
We ask these things, Father, not just so that our lives would be happy and less stressful, but we ask those things for your namesake, for your glory, so that when folks see folks in this body and individuals, they'll say, what a great God you are. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.
be the God who rescues us. We'll worship Him for His grace. Sing it out. A thousand times I've failed Your mercy remains Should I stumble again I'm caught in Your grace Ah 
God, we pray that you will help us to wait on you. God, to understand that you hold us in the palm of your hand. Lord, give us the strength to trust you, God, and to understand that your plans are best for us, God. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be a people who follow hard after you daily. God, help us to listen to your word now. Help it to echo into our lives this week. To help us understand who you are and who we are in light of your truth. It's your name I pray. Amen. How many here have uh, started coming to Grace Bible Church in the last uh, year? Year, two years? How many were here three years ago when the church started? Just a few. So it's a big group. Uh, let me introduce Pastor Gary DeSalvo. He is a uh, Gary the senior pastor at Temple Bible Church. And if you notice, Dave is not here. He is at Temple Bible Church preaching there in our pulpit switch out this morning. Uh, Gary's been in Temple for 30 years or so. He and Bev have uh, two kids. He's a graduate of Dallas Seminary. And about three years ago, he and a group of elders uh, had a heart to uh, plant this church, to uh, raise up a group of folks that were established and equipped and deployed into the community and around the world. And uh, I think the rest is history in the Gary. Amen. So we look forward to uh, seeing what you have to share with us, brother. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I knew Mike Harris when he had uh, color in his hair besides gray. A long time ago, he looked at me and said, I remember when you, and he told me, he said, Gary, I remember when you had a, uh, a, a little stomach and a lot of hair, and over the years, everything's changed, which is true. Actually, I told him, you know, there are three hairstyles. There's parted, unparted, and departed, and uh, I chose the latter. He went gray. I told him, mine, mine preferred death to dishonor. That's the difference between the two of them. Tony Campolo says, uh, you know, we all have a certain amount of hormones. If you want to use yours to grow hair, that's your business. I've got other priorities. So, <laughs> so there you go. I told uh, David, said, I'll go to Temple Bible Church and I'll preach, but uh, we're going to swap offerings. So you guys get the offering from TBC. We've got 2,700 folks over there this morning, and uh, we'll get whatever you give. No, not really. Yeah, but uh, it's a delight to be with you. It's almost like uh, coming back. You know, years ago, I started driving back and forth in the new airport open in Colleen. And I came to my elders one day and said, you know, God's doing a lot of construction, a lot of building, bringing a lot of troops, a lot of folks to, to the clean area. Why don't we pray? Why don't we see what the church community life is there? Because I've been in Temple Nail for 28 and a half years. Mike and I moved to Temple the same month, actually, in 1981. Dave McMurray was a little boy in fourth grade when he started coming to Temple Bible Church. <laughs> I'm an old man, and uh, he's getting old too, but uh, it's been a delight to see God use him. And as I was driving back and forth, I came to the elders and said, why don't we begin to pray? After checking out different churches in the area and uh, finding out there was nothing with the same core values TBC had in Temple, and there were about 200 folks coming from this area, actually, to Temple every week. And so we begin to pray, and uh, the rest is history. And what a delight it is to be here with you. I feel like a, a proud grandfather coming home. Uh, I would say proud dad, but I'm too old to be a dad anymore. I'm a grandpa. In fact, uh, I, I, my one moment of uh, shamelessness in the sun right here, uh, there's my three little grandkids, twins on the ends, and Grayson in the middle who turned one yesterday. So back and forth to College Station, our son-in-law, Bill's an ophthalmologist with Scott White there. I do have a, a son and daughter-in-law as well. 
Uh, he's doing pediatric residency in Washington, D.C. So we're blessed beyond measure. Blessed beyond measure. God has blessed us in so many ways. And part of that blessing is you. To, to watch what God has done in your lives and in this body over the last three years, we say praise and honor and glory be unto him. If you have your Bibles, I'm sure Dave McMurray has taught you to bring your Bibles on Sunday mornings. Matthew chapter 1 is a text we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 1. It's a message I've entitled, Knots in the Family Tree. Knots in the Family Tree. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. You guys are studying Matthew here. We're studying the same thing in Temple. I don't know if you guys know that, but uh, Dave comes to our staff meetings on Wednesday mornings. Uh, whatever you guys are studying here, we study the same passage over there. Uh, we confer. There are about 11 of us around the table, staff mo- folks at uh, TBC. On Wednesday mornings, we talk about the text, and then he preaches here. We preach there. Uh, whoever's up there, me or one of my other staff guys. And uh, so we've been looking at Jesus as king just as you have in the kingdom for the last several months. So we're going all the way back to the beginning. It's Christmas time. It's a Christmas message. begins in chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Three of you just yawned. A genealogy. I mean, how many of you start reading the Bible and you stop as soon as you get to all those hard names in the book of Numbers, you know? It's like, gosh, God, why did you put this stuff in there? I mean, names we can't pronounce, names of people we know nothing about, and yet we come to them, and obviously it's God's inerrant, inspired word. They've got to have a purpose. So we go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but uh, you're thinking, who is this guy up here preaching in David's absence? going to read all the genealogical names to us. Get your pencils. Get your pens. We write in our Bibles at TBC. And to Judah was born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Circle Tamar. First woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Tamar. Who in the world was that? Then it goes on and it says, To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram. To Ram was born Aminadab, to Aminadab Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon. You don't have to know how to pronounce these names. You just read them quickly and with authority, and people think you know what you're doing. Okay? That's how you do this, guys. If you're in a Bible study, that's how you do this stuff. Okay? And then in verse 5, And to Simone was born Boaz by Rahab. Circle Rahab. Rahab is the second woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. There's a third female in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Ruth. So, so far, you've circled Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, Ruth in verse 5. Then in verse 6, to Jesse was born David the king, and to David was born Solomon by her of Uriah. Circle the word her. Some Bibles may have the name there, or some Bibles have in italics, means it's really not there, who had been the wife of Uriah. Who are we speaking of? Who is Uriah's wife? Uh, Solomon became uh, her son. Who is that lady? Bathsheba. Four women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Let's pray. Father, as we look at uh, these four ladies, we look at your word. We look at uh, what they have in common and how you use them. Teach us in Christ's name. Amen. Someone has said, if you shake any family tree, a few nuts will always fall out. (laughs) Okay, if we shook your tree or my tree, same thing we have. My last name is DeSalvo. There's one famous DeSalvo in the history of DeSalvo. Does anybody know who that is? Who's from, the, who's from the New England area? Let me see your hand. Anybody from New England? One famous DeSalvo. Who is that? Uncle Albert. Albert DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler. That's who he was. Okay? 
you shake any family, he wasn't really my uncle, but, uh, you know, you shake any family tree, a few nuts are going to fall out. And when you look at the genealogy of Christ, the birth of Christ, it's really a, a different story. Third grader named Johnny was uh, sitting on his computer. He was doing a report for school that had to do with uh, the human reproductive system. He went to his mother, who was in the kitchen, without warning. He looked and said, Mom, how was I born? Her knees began to shake. She was not ready to tell Johnny the facts of life yet. So she looked at him and she started to say, well, Johnny, uh, a stark brought you. And he looked at her and went and said, that's interesting. She said, but Grandma, who's working in the other room, she may tell you a little more. So Johnny went in the other room where Grandma, the Victorian era, was and said, Grandma, I've got a question for you, Grandma. How was my mom born? And Grandma's knees got weak and she began to shake because she wasn't ready to tell little Johnny about any of this stuff. He said, well, Stark brought your mama, Stark brought your mama, Johnny. Grandma, how were you born? Well, Stark brought me too. Johnny went back to his computer and said, there has not been a natural birth in our family in over three generations. I mean, when, when you look at this stuff, where does it come from? Where are these names? Who are these people? And what does it mean? In, in particular, when we look at these four women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ and look at our Savior's ancestry, it may surprise you that they are the, the family line of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But here's the reality, friends. I think what we're going to see as we look at a little biographical sketch of each of these four ladies is that God's grace and God's sovereignty is like a big shot spotlight shining on each of these women and upon the world and upon each of you. Because they represent probably many of us sitting in this room this Sunday morning. If you think your past is too much to overcome, spiritually think again. Because you're going to see the one thing that these ladies have in common is a very checkered past. Now, genealogies are significant for a number of reasons. They're a significant nation of Israel because the land was important to Israel. And therefore, genealogies showed which portion of the land would be yours, which tribes lived in which area of the nation. Genealogies were important because of Levitical priesthood. You had to be the tribe of Levi, and so they had to have genealogies to keep the, the, the priesthood straight. Genealogies were important for the purpose of taxation. Mary and Joseph are headed to Bethlehem based upon the fact that Joseph was of the house of whom? David. And so they're headed back to Bethlehem where they would pay their taxes based upon their genealogy. And so genealogy is important in the Jewish mindset, very important. And ultimately, the significance of genealogies is that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be born in the lineage of David, the tribe of Jesse, the lineage of David. And so they had to know through which funnel the ultimate, the King of Kings, the Messiah, would come. And so if you go to the Gospels, it's quite interesting to look at a genealogical study. The book of Matthew that you're studying and we're studying on Sunday mornings. Actually, Matthew presents Jesus Christ as king, as we've been studying. His audience, the people that he's writing to are the Jews. And it's interesting. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, that you have your Bibles open to. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, there's something a little screwy there in there. I mean, well, how do you jump from David to Abraham? Going backwards in the genealogy, he starts way ahead of time. He goes to David. It's because he's presenting Jesus as king. And if you are presenting Jesus as king, the ultimate king of Israel, the one who will be the Messiah, is the one from the lineage of David. And so in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew writing to a Jewish audience presenting Christ as king, says, I want you to know this Jesus is one who comes from the lineage of King David. If you go on in the Gospels, the next Gospel is, is Luke, is Mark, I'm sorry. And Mark presents Christ as a servant. He's writing to the Roman people. Now, 
how interested are you in the genealogy of a servant or a slave? Not at all. I mean, it may be a great study if you're into that kind of stuff or if you're part of that family, but the genealogies of slaves are rather insignificant. And so the result is when Jesus is being presented as a servant, Mark 10.45, the high water mark of that book, Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom. He's presented as a servant. And so the result is you go to Mark's gospel, you know what you find genealogically? Nothing. Nothing. Because the genealogy of a servant is not that important. You go to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is presenting Jesus Christ as the son of man. Matthew is king, Mark is servant, Luke is son of man. He's writing to the Greeks. The Greeks are part of the earth, part of the world. And so if you go to the whole physical part being important to them, so if you go to the genealogy presented in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3, the genealogy of Jesus Christ is traced, this is verse 38 of Luke 3, to the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. By the way, people say the Bible is filled with contradictions of genealogies between Matthew and Luke. The only two genealogies given in the Gospels is one of the examples of why there are contradictions in the Bible. Wrong. Wrong. A closer look shows that Matthew is tracing Jesus' lineage through his father David. Luke is tracing the lineage through his mother Mary. They come from different families. If we trace my genealogy, my wife's genealogy, they would not look the same. We have different mamas and daddies. We're from Louisiana, not Arkansas. <laughs> my apologies to the Razorbacks here. I mean, you know, here, 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 here's the reality. He, he's saying, if Jesus Christ is a son of man, writing to the Greeks, he traced them all the way back to Adam because Adam was the first what? The first man. And then it goes on, the Gospel of John. Jesus Christ is presented as the Son of God. He's writing to the world. There's no genealogy, but if you're presenting him as a Son of God, that means he has no beginning, no end, so you wouldn't trace his lineage. So John begins his Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the infinite one who always was, always is, and always will be. And you go down to verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacle among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten, full of grace and full of truth. So John says, if I'm presenting Jesus as the Son of God, he has no beginning. I can't give you a genealogy. Wow. Hey, we could stop there and say, man, praise God. Look at what he's done. Four different authors, four different books, putting it all together in that way. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's why we look at the Word of God and say, yeah, I can trust this book. The inspired and errant word of God given to us to point us into redemptive salvation in Jesus Christ and then an instruction manual forever. Somebody says Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Pretty good. And that's what you hold in your hand today, my friends. So I could let you out right now, which if you know me, I'm not going to do. And we're going to look at these four women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The first one's Tamar. Tamar, she's an interesting lady. Her story is found in Genesis chapter 38. So turn back in your Bibles to Genesis 38. We read about her in Matthew 1.3. Tamar is in this genealogy. And the question is, who is this woman? Well, it's interesting. Beginning in verse 6, it says, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and the wife's name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, in chapter 38, verse 7, 
But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord took his life. Tamar gets married. She marries a guy named Ur, E-R. How many of you out there named Ur? <laughs> Not a very common name, is it? So, so what we see is uh, she's married to this guy. We don't know what he does, but whatever he does is significant enough that God kills him. Kills him. I mean, if you look at verse 7, it says, hey, He did evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord took his life. So Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law. This is called the Leverite marriage. This is when I praise God that we are no longer under the law. <laughs> See, under the law, if, uh, if, uh, my, if, your, if your brother died, then you had to take his wife as your own. I'm going to tell you, my family, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> Not going to happen. But, but that's what happened in that day and age because there was no system to provide for them. And so if your brother's wife died, then you took her in as one of your wives. And so we read here, it says, so Onan is instructed by his dad to take him in. And so we see in verse 9, Onan knew the offspring would not be his own, etc. And then we go to verse 10, but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So God took his life also. Tamar is married twice. Both of her husbands are killed by God. Moral of the story is, you don't want to be her third husband. <laughs> I mean, look, look at this. So Judah, the father of these two men, her father-in-law, in verse 11 says, Remain a widow in my house until my son Shela, or Sheila, no woman wants to marry a guy named Sheila anyway. Wait until my son grows up. I'm afraid that he too may die like your brother. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house, but she got tired. She got tired of waiting. She got tired of not having kids. She got tired of not being pregnant. And so you know what Tamar does? It's in the rest of the book here. I'm not going to read that whole chapter. Let me tell you the story. Tamar decides she needs a husband. She dresses up like a prostitute. She goes on a road where she knows that her father-in-law is going to come. She disguises herself. Her father-in-law, Judah does a despicable thing. He hires a prostitute. He beds down with her. He impregnates her. And then he finds out it's his own daughter-in-law. And you thought Jerry Springer invented this stuff. <laughs> I mean, you can't find anything more despicable, can you? Two husbands both die, dress up like a prostitute, bed down your father-in-law, get pregnant for him. And in Matthew chapter 1, you're in the genealogy of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What? What is that about? I mean, what in the world is a lesson God is trying to teach us here? I think one of the lessons, my friends, is this right here. God can overcome even the most sordid. Some of you walked into this building and you thought, you know, if these people here knew everything I thought and everything I've done in my past, they wouldn't let me in that door right there. Some of you have been like Tamar. Multiple spouses. You've bedded down with someone who's not your spouse, maybe even as late as last night. I've been doing this for almost 29 years. I'm not naive. Some of you are involved in stuff you shouldn't be involved in. Some of you are men who can't wait for your wives and kids to go to bed so you can go downstairs to get on the computer and look at stuff you have no business looking at. 
Some of you are single, sleeping with somebody you're not married to. Some of you are married and sleeping with somebody you shouldn't be married to. What pay more? You have no hope. I think the lessons is God can overcome the most sordid past. Some of you come from backgrounds of sexual abuse. Some of you come from backgrounds where it's so sordid, you say, Gary, you don't have time to listen to my story. Some of you bounce from counselor to counselor to counselor. I've got good news for you today. The wonderful counselor desires to give you eternal hope and eternal life today. No matter how sordid your past, no matter how despicable you feel, no matter what things were perpetrated upon you or against you, God can use you. We read the story of Tamar and we see her in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Can anything be a greater picture of grace? Isn't that amazing? I mean, I read that and think, how, how does she get there? I received this email. It's a reminder to me of how God can overcome a difficult past. Received it uh, three years ago. Said, recently we had some dear friends visiting us. They had faithfully served the Lord in Africa for over 30 years. About four years ago, their teenage daughter began to fall apart at the seams, and after several months, she revealed that she'd been physically and sexually abused by an older cousin every time they would come home on furlough since she was six years old. Spent their life on the mission field. Come home to visit every four years. Older cousin would physically and sexually abuse this young girl. She's now a teenager. Her life has fallen apart. She said, I've been thinking about this young girl a lot. This is what the email says. How she was tragically violated while her parents were faithfully praying for her. Praying for her physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I know they did that. They're the most, one of the most godly couples I know. The mom led my mom's in touch group where we prayed not only for her kids but all of our kids. Her father is a model of Christ-likeness. They've been in the mission field their whole lives. They've led many folks to Christ. And I begin to ask myself this question. Where were you, God, when this sweet little girl was being violated by her cousin? And when my heart, the author of this email, when my heart was being broken by the pain of rejection and abuse, where were you, God? Becky's childhood, this young lady's childhood, was a complete contrast to mine. I had no one that I know that ever prayed for me or modeled anything remotely moral or spiritual for me. And this author goes on and says, people have told me that when I was being abused and God allowed bad things to happen to me, that he was in the corner weeping. That would mean he's a passive God. That brings me no comfort. Others have told me that when these things were being perpetrated against me, that he was doing his best. But his best wasn't good enough for the things that happened to me. So he's an impotent God. That brings no comfort to me. A passive God, an impotent God. Then she writes, as I was on my knees in desperation this morning, I gently, the, the, he gently revealed himself to me as the captain of the heavenly host. Isn't that amazing? She says, I'm on my knees, and he revealed himself as a captain of the heavenly host. He showed me that he was in the battle for my soul when I was being tormented by others. He wasn't passively standing by in a corner observing these vile things. He was actively engaged in heavenly warfare, directing his angelic forces to protect my soul from being lost forever in Satan's grasp. And he wasn't impotently watching and as unspeakable things were done to me as an innocent child. Instead, electrifying power was filling heaven and earth as he waged war against the forces of evil on my behalf. And as a result, I was tormented, but I was not overpowered. 
The father of flies couldn't snatch me away from the heavenly grasp because even though my body was being broken, my spiritual destiny was and is forever safe in his hands. The great I am was there with me, never leaving my side, and I am grateful for his faithfulness to this day. Hey, that can be your story. When I got that email from my wife, my wife, as she has battled against the forces of darkness in her life, from things that were perpetrated against her as a young girl, and to watch the journey that she has come down as she's clung to the mane of the Lion of Judah. And I've watched the change in her life over and over. I say, praise God. And even though she had a sordid past, God is using her in great ways. What about you? Don't stay mired in the muck of your past. Become a product of your past, not a prisoner of your past. That's Tamar. That's Tamar. It can be you. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you're mired in that stuff and you may never get over it. But if you will come to grips with the great I Am, He will throw His loving arms around you and He can take the most sordid past and accomplish absolutely amazing things. That's Tamar. The next one we find in that genealogy, I'm going the wrong way on this thing. My clicker clicks the other way. The next one is Rahab. Rahab the what? Rahab the... You're going to meet a lady in heaven one day and she's going to walk and say, Hey, I'm Rahab, who are you? You're going to say, The harlot? I mean, that's her last name, isn't it? I mean, it's like, I mean, we fill in that blank automatically. Rahab the harlot. And you're going to meet her there. She's going to be there. I guarantee she's going to be there. The book, says, the book of Joshua tells us that. Turn to Joshua chapter 2 for a second. But we just read about her in Matthew chapter 1. We read about her in Joshua chapter 2. The nation is getting ready to enter the promised land. One of the most forbidding cities they have to go against is Jericho because Jericho has these massive walls built around the city. And so some spies are sent to Jericho to see if they can somehow breach the wall. They go to the house of Rahab the harlot, probably for multiple reasons. More than likely it's because that's where the gossip in town takes place. That's where the men come to. And so they could get some information. They were surprised at what they found. What they found is a woman whose heart had been changed because of a fear of God. We pick up the story in Joshua chapter 2, beginning, let's say, in about verse 9. Joshua 2, 9. And, and, and she said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants' land will be melted away. And then in verse 11, when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer, for the Lord your God, he is the God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now, a lot of people in Jericho heard what God had done, but not many of them believe. In fact, it's Rahab and her family. It's because she saw the fear of God, and the result is she repented. She turned and embraced the living God. She said, I know that your God is the real God. And so when we come to Rahab's story, we see the story of a changed life. But we see the story of, of a woman who, who, who has a repentant heart and it produced a changed life. And you know the story how she hangs a scarlet thread from her window. The spies are saved. Or the, spy, the spies leave, they come back, she and her family are saved, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, and Rahab the harlot is a woman of faith. And you go to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and you read about Rahab the harlot. She was an Amorite, a pagan harlot, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You've got to be kidding me. 
Where'd that come from? It's another display of God's grace. She had such a fear of God. Mike Iaconelli says this, faith has been reduced to a comfortable system of beliefs about God instead of an uncomfortable encounter with God. Childlike faith understands that God is capable of destroying us as he is of saving us. One of the marks of the church in the late 20th century and the early 21st century is God has become our buddy. He's become our friend. He's become the guy we go to lunch with, the guy we go to breakfast with. He's the guy, but he is not a God to be feared. I'm going to tell you, my friend, I read this author about three years ago, and he talked about how when he looked in the mirror to shave every day, God was on his shoulder. God is not some kind of parrot sitting on the shoulder of a man. If those doors open right now, Socrates, Plato, Elvis walked in that door. But we might all rise in awe. But if Jesus Christ walked through that door, we'd fall on our face. Fall on our face worship. And people that tell me, yeah, you know, me and God, we've got this. I'm thinking, man, when Isaiah saw God, all he could do was fall on his face and said, woe is me. You fear God. See, when you develop a fear of the Almighty, that's when you don't live a moralistic Christianity. You know, we grew up in an era, I grew up in an era when I, I knew what you couldn't do. You know, you don't. You don't drink, you don't cuss, you don't chew, and you don't go with those that do. That was a spiritual life. I, at the church I grew up, I don't know if anybody loved God, but I know they hated drinking. <laughs> I, I know we couldn't dance. I, I, and I, I'm thinking, I mean, all this moralism. So why do you do what you do? When you fear God and you love God, then you want to honor God. It's not I'm a good boy scout. It's not a moralistic and I want to be the best worker that my company has. So what? It's because I want to glorify God in everything that I do. So the result is I am faithful to Bev DeSalvo every day of my life. I want to glorify God, so I'm going to work as hard as I can for the the job God's given me. I I, I want to be the the very best I can at what I do. You know why? Because I have a God that I want to glorify. And somehow the price tags got reversed over the last 30 years. And what we've heard is, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's not the spiritual life. That's legalism. That'll kill you. That's boring. You do what you do because of your love for God, you desire to serve God, and when you do those things, then you'll honor God with your life. Well, it's interesting, in James chapter 2, we meet Rahab again. What good is it, my brothers, if a man has uh, faith but he has no deeds, can that save him? In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute, there's her last name, Rahab the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. You see, she knew God, so the result is she had to serve God. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can't help but serve him somewhere. Uh, at TBC, we say you've got to find a place to grow and a place to serve. Otherwise, come to baptism, I'll hold you under and send you to glory. <laughs> I mean, why else are you here? Why else are you here? To stack up a 401k? To rise up the ranks? To... Why else are you here? Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. I should be able to walk up to everybody at GBC this morning and say, Tell me where you serve. Tell me who you serve. 
get your home open to a Bible study. Somebody in the in the in the in the company you're in, you're you're taking care of. Maybe maybe they're deployed. You're helping with kids, or I don't know what it is. Maybe it's serving in a nursery here. But that needs to happen. We're not going to go there. I don't have enough time to do with that. A, a repentant heart produces a changed life. That's the story of Rahab. Thirdly, Ruth. What do you know about Ruth? Interesting lady. She gets married. Her husband dies. There's a pattern here. Can you see that? Her husband dies. Her mother-in-law Naomi. She says, I'm going to go. Your people are my people. I'm going to live with you, etc., etc." Ruth the what? Moabitess. Moabites is an interesting story there. They came out of uh, Lot's ancestry. Lot's daughters didn't think they have kids. Remember, Lot's wife turned into a salt, and his daughters didn't think they would ever have a man, and so they get their daddy drunk. One sleeps with him one night, the other the next night. Jerry Spring on Kelly has nothing on the Bible at all. Both these girls get pregnant. One of them becomes the, the ancestor to the Moabites, and Ruth is a Moabitess. She comes out of a pagan tribe, a pagan people, and yet we find her in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She is an unlikely trophy of grace. Then we've got one final lady. Her name is Bathsheba. I think Bathsheba's a victim. When the king issues an edict for you to come to his palace, you go to his palace. Bathsheba's a victim. But when you see Bathsheba in heaven, you're going to think, Bathsheba, what are you going to think? Adultery. Adultery. David, adultery. Bathsheba. They all go together. So we go to Matthew chapter 1 we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ and there are four ladies. Four ladies. There they are. Tamar. An incestuous, deceptive prostitute. Rahab, the harlot. Ruth, the Moabitess. And Bathsheba, the adulteress. How's that for a checkered past? I mean, you're thinking, gosh, what a great Christmas message guy comes over here and ruins our day. <laughs> Just the opposite. You know why? All four of these ladies teach us, they teach us this, that God's grace can mend a broken heart and it can transform a shattered life. That's what teaches us. I mean, you look at these four ladies and you think, how in the world would they be in the genealogy of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And God says, I want you to know, these women, they're just like you. They're messy. They're schizophrenic. You believe today and you doubt tomorrow like the rest of us. They're schizophrenic. You walk with God today and you walk in the world tomorrow and the result is your life is just a mess. And I think what that genealogy teaches is there's hope for each of us. Some of you walked in with shattered lives today. Shattered, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior yet. That's where this journey begins. The, the, the Christmas story, I mean, I, I sat next to a guy in a plane a few months ago. He says, tell me what you believe. And I, I started chuckling after I told him, well, I believe the prophets of old told about a man who would be virgin-born, come to earth, fully God, fully man, die on a cross, rise from the grave, and come back as king. The guy says, you really believe that? 
It sounds like a myth to me. No, I really believe it. And I believe that the only hope you have to overcome a past like this is to place your faith in that man. Some of you already know the Savior. But the reality of it is you're far away from it. You've got to look in the rearview mirror of your life to remember a time when you were close. This morning is a good morning to confess. Because you too can become a trophy of grace. You too can become one of these women who can be used by God in great ways to accomplish the impossible. I've got two baseballs in my office. Second one, I, I appreciate. I'm not as proud of the first one. The second one is actually an autographed Mickey Mantle baseball. Mickey Mantle was my hero when I was a, a kid, number seven, New York Yankees center field. I can give you all the statistics. Lot in Oklahoma, played for the Yankees, blah, 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 number seven. And I told that story how Mickey was one of my favorite ball players in conjunction with the story I'm going to tell you in a second. And it was Christmas week about four years ago, and I showed up for Christmas Eve service in my, uh, at, at TDC, and sitting on my desk was a Mickey Mantle autographed baseball with a note of authenticity. To this day, I have no idea who gave it to me. They heard the story, and they gave it to me. So I appreciate that baseball a lot. It means a lot to me. It sits on my desk, Mickey Mantle. But the other one I really appreciate. My son and I love baseball. He's, uh, as I said, up in the D.C. area now. And uh, we've been to a lot of baseball games. In fact, when we finished high school, we did uh, Fenway Park and Yankee Stadium and Cooperstown and, and then came back. It was just a great time. And one of, one of any man's dream that goes to a baseball game is one day to be able to catch a foul ball. You want to catch a foul ball? Man, I, we've always wanted a foul ball. So Daniel and I go to all these stadiums, all these games. You know how many foul balls we've caught? None. Nada. Zero. We've had them hit two rows behind us. We've had them hit one row in front of us at Yankee Stadium. We, I, not we, me, knocked over two kids trying to get to one. <laughs> Didn't happen. But we had, we're out there for batting practice, you know, when they jack a few home runs and so I'm pushing and shoving with all of them out there. Didn't get a ball for my son. When my daughter was a freshman in college, I grew up in New Orleans, and uh, we went down here. My dad said, well, you want to go to a baseball game? He said, let's go to a baseball game. And he said, I've got a friend give us some tickets, great tickets. Uh, we're on the first base dugout side. That's the home team side, New Orleans Zephyr side. And we're in the front row, first row. So it's me, my dad, my mom, my wife, my daughter. You saw her picture earlier. She's a looker. She got my wife's looks, not mine, thank goodness. <laughs> and we're sitting in the front row, and she's about 19 years old. Well, if you know anything, minor league baseball is a double 18. These kids are all about 18, 19, 21, 22. The kid that's the starting picture, I mean, we are, the rubber's right here. We're sitting right behind him, and Every time he'd throw a pitch, I'd notice he'd turn and take a look at my daughter. Hey, you look at it too long, I'm going to break your fingers and you're not going to pitch again. But, but I, noticed, I noticed that. And so I said, Sarah, so he's going to finish warming up in a second. I want you to wink at him when he's done. I mean, on cue, Sarah winks at that boy when he throws his last pitch. He takes that ball and says, here, give it to her. Gave it to her dad. <laughs> and it's in my office in Temple Town. Right next to Mickey Mantle's autograph. You know what those things are? Trophies of grace. Don't they are. Let me tell you something better. God's giving you way more than a baseball <laughs> He's given eternal hope and eternal life in Jesus Christ if you trust him. 
we're going to take of the Lord's table. I have no idea what time it is because I can't see that clock, nor do I know what time you go home from here. Uh, David is finishing his 10 till 12 right now. What time do y'all quit? About now? 